It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a conversation with Ray Wynn Grant, definitely the coolest biologist specializing in large carnivores I've ever spoken with. I think the only biologist specializing in large carnivores I've ever interviewed, but still, she's very, very cool, and I'm really happy to have her on the show. In particular, she focuses on bears, black bears, and their population in the American West, and she does it with data, modeling how they move, how they interact with humans, and how to protect both sides of that equation. If her name sounds familiar, by the way, it's because she has appeared from time to time on Slate's The Gist podcast, where I first heard her, so thanks for the tip, Mike Pesca. But Ray Wingrant works at the American Museum of Natural History, just a few blocks from the 538 offices, so she came by recently to talk bears and data. Here is our conversation. Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So it's Wednesday morning. It's like... A little after 10 a.m., we're in the middle of Manhattan, but when was the last time you saw a bear? Oh my gosh. I see bears fairly frequently, I'm happy to say. The last time I saw one was early summer, so it was the beginning of June, and it was nowhere near the yeah. middle of Manhattan. I was far away, thousands of miles away on um, out west um, in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. So you, your work is like a mix of being out in the field. And I like how sometimes people talk about work in the field and you're like actually in a field sometimes, right? Uh, or in the woods. But uh, so your work is in the field um, and then also in front of a computer. Um, it sounds like those are the, the two parts of your life. So let's take those one at a time. So when sure. you're in the field and you're uh, and in the Sierras or, or wherever, what, do, what does your day to day actually look like? You know, it's really exciting. It makes for good storytelling, actually, um, because my field work is um, a lot of hiking, a lot of camping, a lot of like really tough physical activity. And basically what I'm doing is I'm spending all this time in these mountains and in these forests, um, in mostly in Nevada, in western Nevada. And I am either looking for bears or I am doing essentially a landscape analysis where I'm trying to get an understanding of the different types of vegetation in the air in a certain area. Um, or I'm trapping bears. Or if I've successfully trapped a bear, I am returning it mm -hmm. back into the forest. And you're trapping it to tag it? I'm trapping so it to do a couple of things. So we set these, me and the, the team of colleagues that I work with, we set these um, very large bear traps that actually trap the whole animal. Um, and we are setting them uh, in order to capture these bears and we'll always have an interest in a certain age or sex of an animal. And we attach GPS collars mm -hmm. to them. And so it's really exciting and it's really, really wonderful work to do because it gives us, which we'll talk about later, all of this data to work with. But we're setting these traps deep in the wilderness, deep in the mountains or in canyons or wherever. What we'll do and what I get to do especially is we tranquilize the animal. So you sound very excited about the It's fun. I mean, you know, I have to say I have this tranquilizer gun and it's it's fun because it has um, you know, like the laser on it, like, uh -huh. like snipers have, uh -huh. <laughs> but it, you know, it does not harm the animals, just right. drugs. So, you know, I'll like, I'll ha be a certain, so you can have your like distance. Jason Bourne moment. I have a little moment yeah. every time. And of course, you know, the adrenaline spikes because I could miss and the animal gets upset and then I'm in danger. But anyway, I tranquilize the animal and once it's down, it takes, you know, two or three minutes for the animal to fall asleep. 
and that's when I'm able to handle it. And so that's another really fun part of my job. And I take lots of pictures and stuff of me, you know, actually up close and personal with a wild bear, mm-hmm. um, you know, a 300 to 600 pound, you know, black bear sometimes. And I'm taking blood samples, you know, to do DNA analyses and taking hair samples and kind of weighing and measuring the animal and then ultimately giving it a physical tag. So usually in its ear, almost like an earring that has a number and a code on it, and then attaching a GPS collar. So I have already learned one important tip, which is trap the bear and then tranquilize the bear. Oh my gosh. Don't try and do it the other way around because imagine if you miss or uh, upset the bear. Yes. Then you can be in a dangerous situation, which I have been in and they're not pleasant, but I've lived to tell about it. So good tip for anyone, uh, anyone (laughs) out there, not that you should try it. Um, so I guess we should we should establish. You mentioned black bears. You mentioned the Sierras. But like, how many? What's the population size that you're trying to get up, your your head around? Black bears are a fairly common species in the United States, which it's notable to say that they are uh, essentially considered a conservation success story. Mm-hmm. So. As a conservation scientist, it's really important for me to kind of emphasize that because we're often seeing so many species going extinct or just being very critically endangered. And Um, black bears were at that point. And black bears used to be endangered. And now they have rebounded over the past 50 years or so. They have really um, come up. Um, And there's black bears in a lot of parts of the United States. They're what we call habitat generalists. So that means that they can survive in, you know, very cold environments, say like in Canada or Alaska or in the mountains where I work. They can be in very warm environments. You'll find black bears in Mexico. Um, they're in forests. They're in coastal areas, even along beaches and, you know, say, North or South Carolina. I mean, they're absolute yeah. generalists. So we're humans, which we'll talk about in a minute, too. About which you will. I'm sure we'll get um, to that. But, like, when you talk about your area in the in the Sierra Nevadas, I mean, we're talking about a 100 bears, a 1,000 bears? I mean, how many? Yeah, that's a great question. So... We can only estimate right now, and we can talk about how we make these estimates, but right now the black bear population in the state of Nevada is around 400 individuals. So that's what we'll call a small population. If you take, for example, the state of California, they're estimated to have around 40,000 black bears. But in your little world in the Sierras, I mean, 400 is enough where I I don't know, does it feel like you kind of have your head around the population? I mean, do you have names for the individual bears you know, to we, develop a relationship with them? <laughs> we do name our bears. Yeah. I mean, usually um, they get pretty boring names. So we're talking, you know, Red 39 oh, or okay. White 67 or something. But every so often we'll name them after, you know, different like right. Denver Broncos players or, you know, something like that. But they get kind of boring names. It's I think like I named hurricanes. one of them Michael Jackson once, yeah. just, you know, in remembrance. But yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll move towards... Um, the data that you're collecting, but like, why do you even need to go into the field? I mean, are we not, is is the technology not exist to like, I don't know, map from afar, do satellite imagery, do drone? I mean, I don't know. I'm just, yeah, that's a a really great question. And I don't know if that's a question I've had before. So, you know, in terms of everyone that I work with, I work with a group of great conservation scientists and every single person does field work. Um, And they do field work in, you know, on primates in Vietnam or in whales, you know, in Mm -hmm. the South Pacific and, you know, just everything in between. Um, You know, some people study bacteria and, you know, and all of it involves field work. And part of that is because we're often so concerned with a particular species as opposed to 
an ecosystem. Um, so you mentioned, for example, maybe satellites can, you know, show us projections of a landscape and then we can create maps that way. Certainly, but we can't actually identify how different species are using that landscape. Um, and there's a lot of unanswered research questions there. So, you know, field work at this point is the way to go. Um, okay, so so let's let's make the list of the data that you're gathering out there. So you, you're obviously doing um, you know habitat mapping. You're kind of trying to get a sense of the environment. Uh, you are GPS tracking of the bears, the, mm-hmm. so their movement. Mm-hmm. What other what other factors are you concerned with? Yeah, well, okay, I'll get a little deep Do here it. if you don't mind, because um, I still haven't figured out a lighter way to explain this. But I'm curious to investigate a couple of different things. So you mentioned habitat mapping, and so that's essentially uh, habitat selection analysis. So I'm interested in learning what types of habitats bears are selecting for and why, and which types of habitats they're avoiding and why. So in general, we can say, you know, bears are found in the forest, but there's actually distinct parts of forest that bears will never be in and parts of the forest that they will frequently be attracted to. Mm-hmm. And there are these ecological drivers of what would make them make those choices. And that's really interesting for us to know, especially as we're trying to figure out what types of forests to protect and in which areas, because there's always these pressures, especially in the U.S., of developing more of the landscape for human use. And if we have a big intact forest, but a bear is only using a certain part of it, we need to know that because it might be okay to develop a certain part of the forest for a bear use, or it might be very detrimental to the bear population if we er eliminate some of its critical habitat. We're also always trying to gather information on the population and its health, its growth rate, um, and essentially its trajectory, so the population dynamics. So that's actually a little bit easier work um, to do in terms of the data crunching because we're looking at, you know, capturing as many animals as we can and just recording simple information like the sex of the animal, the age, the weight, um, its reproductive um, capacity. So whether if it's a female, whether she has cubs with her, whether it looks like she's had cubs, if she's too young, if she's too old, et cetera. So going back to modeling where the the bears are just gravitating towards like what is that actually can you tell like can you tell me a story of like what that actually looks like and whether there was there's been a moment where you've kind of been surprised that like oh bears seem to be into this part of the woods that we didn't expect yeah totally so there's two ways that I can kind of talk about it and one way is what I see on the ground when I'm in the field and the other way is what I see when I'm doing statistical modeling at my desk at the natural history museum (laughs) um and so essentially If I'm on the ground in the field, I have this really kind of tough task of figuring out where to set bear traps. And I have to set them in places where I think I'll be able to catch a bear and often where I think I'll be able to catch a new individual, Mm -hmm. right? I don't want to re-catch something that already has a collar. You've met Michael Jackson enough times. I've already seen Michael Jackson. Like, he's good to go. Yeah. and so the the good thing about these bears that have the GPS collars is that I know where they are all the time. So I can say, okay, that bear is in this mountain range, so I know I'm not going to set a trap there, but it looks like we don't have any animals buzzing about in this area. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily know where uncollared wild animals are. Um, 
there's just no way to tell. The forest is vast. There aren't that many bears in the state of Nevada. And yeah. so it's really kind of risky. So there's a couple of things we do. So I might first go out a week or two in advance and set what we call camera traps. And there's a specific um, way that you can set camera traps. We'll essentially do transects. Um, so a lot of field biologists will take transects where you take, you know, different straight lines through the forest, you know, and set them, you know, half a kilometer apart from each other and have them, you know, 500 meters long and you'll set camera traps in, you know, different increments along the way. You're just like creating a grid, basically. You're essentially creating a grid and these cameras basically take pictures at, you know, when different motions come Mm -hmm. across. Um, they're like motion sensor cameras and they even take great pictures at night. And so then, you know, every couple of days you'll go back to your camera traps, you'll take out the, you know, the the card in them, look at whether you got pictures of any bears. And are you like actually just physically looking at the images or do you have a way of processing those automatically? No, no, I take the card and I put it into my computer and I look through all the images and most of them are pictures of like squirrels, you know, running right. around and, you know, sometimes they're pictures of me, you know, like <laughs> kind of being in the way. Um, and every so often I'll get a picture of a mountain lion or a picture of a bobcat and, you know, all these really interesting things that I'm happy to see. Uh, but rarely, honestly, rarely it's a bear. Right. But when it is a bear, I can say, okay, great. I know there are bears in this area. I'm going to set a real trap and bait it and check it every day to make sure I catch an animal. And Your original question was about, you know, understanding the habitat selection and whether I'm finding animals in places where I don't expect. And yes and no. I think more often I'm not finding animals in places I would expect them to be. Yeah. And so that's always interesting. So if I have a habitat that has a lot of what we call hard and soft mast, which means um, resources that trees produce that animals can eat, um, I would really expect to find a bear there. You know, if we're in a place that has a lot of berries and fruit and, you know, deer, you know, having calves and, you know, birds laying eggs and all of these, you know, natural resources that are available for bears, um, it's possible that I won't be able to trap a bear there. And that is always really interesting. What my modeling has told me is that often those areas have a certain level of human influence that actually um, deters uh, black bears. And so in the area where I work in my study system, there's a lot of human recreation in the backcountry. So a lot of people use these mountains and, you know, these forested areas for hiking and for camping, for fishing, for hunting. And so if you have a single hiker who's, you know, walking around the forest, you wouldn't think that would be a huge problem for a bear to keep them kilometers and kilometers away. But I'm finding that it really actually does repel them. Um, And I assume these are people who probably think of themselves as nature lovers and conservationists yeah, yeah, and are exactly. probably on the same side of this conversation as you are. Exactly. And so we actually, from this research, we're finding that humans actually have a much bigger impact to animal communities and in particular large carnivore communities than we'd previously thought. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux. It's getting towards the end of summer into the end of wedding season. Do you have a wedding or special event coming up and need a tux right now? Well, don't panic. The Black Tux designs modern fit suits and tuxedos for rent that deliver straight to your door. And now the Black Tux will give you a free home try-on so you can see the fit and feel the quality of their suits before your event. The best part, you can arrange it all online. 
Head to theblacktux.com to create your look or choose a complete outfit package. Prices start at just $95. Their suits are designed with fine Italian wool, the highest quality on the rental market. Their expert customer care team can work with you to answer your questions and find the perfect suit. And your outfit will arrive a full week before your event. That leaves you plenty of time to try it on. And if you need to work on the fit, the Black Tux will fix any problems before your event. When the event's over, you just drop it in the box and drop it in the mail and send it back. Shipping is always free, both ways, delivery and return. Visit theblacktux.com slash point right now to experience a new way to rent. Remember, that's theblacktux.com slash point so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. When you say you're modeling, I mean, what, what does that actually look like? What does the model... You know, what is the model? Are you looking at an Excel spreadsheet? Are you looking at a map? Step by step, what I'm doing is I'm creating what we call resource selection probability function models. Whoa. Okay. We call them RSPFs. <laughs> Great. Um, but again, I'll say it again. Resource selection probability function models. And essentially, resource selection is what it sounds like. So where is an animal likely to to use a resource, right? And in the case of my modeling, that resource is a location, not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, a type of food or, or a type right. of shelter, but a location point. And then the probability is exactly what it sounds like. Like, how likely is an animal to use this location? And then we're modeling that. And so that means I take the empirical data that I have, which means the actual GPS points I have of, say, a single animal on a landscape. And so I know, you know, in the course of three or five years, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, or thousands actually, of location points on a landscape where this bear has been. And I can essentially use GIS, which is Mm -hmm. Geographic Information System. So it's a type of software um, that allows us to make maps. And so I will plot these points on the map of the landscape. And then I'll essentially um, use an algorithm to buffer the points. So I will say, okay, here's a point. Let's say this point is, you know, on the landscape, and I'll create a buffer around the point that's, say, five kilometers wide. Um, and that's because, oh gosh, I don't know how to say this Bears more wander. simply. But essentially, we, we always run into this issue of spatial autocorrelation. Oh. And so that essentially means that if I have all this data, it's actually correlated. So if I have all these different location points, they aren't independent points, right? right? So a bear is in one location because it was just a couple miles away, right? It's not like it just randomly hopped from uh-huh. one location to another. There's actually a, you know, a movement pattern that makes sense. And so because of that, we can't actually say that every location point was a deliberate choice because of a resource there. Maybe a bear is trying to go from point A to point B and has to go through all these weird habitats in between. And so... Anyway, what we have to do is essentially what we call thin our data. So say I have thousands of data points all over the landscape. I have to um, use an equation to take a fraction of that data. And that makes what is remaining much more random. Then I'll buffer the points uh, about five kilometers so that I can't add additional points within those five kilometers. And then I'll have the GIS program put in what I actually call random points. So they'll place in a whole bunch of random points, maybe double the amount of 
actual empirical points that I have. Those random points are then what we call unused, right? So now I have a map that shows all these used points on the mm -hmm. landscape and then even more unused points on the landscape. On top of that, I make different data layers of what the landscape looks like. So I'll have a layer of elevation right. at every point, a layer of um, vegetation type at every point, a layer of distance to water at every point, distance to road, difference, distance to town, um, average temperature at every single point. And then what I'm able to do is do the resource selection probability function model, which helps me understand what are the differences between the used points and the unused points? And how likely is a bear to select a point with these specific characteristics versus a point with these specific characteristics? Yeah. Do you follow? No, I follow. It's, it's kind of hard to say without right. having the visual. Yeah, but um, I'm picturing it in my head. I'm but hopefully the you map. can picture it. So but, if you think of like like a, like a layer cake, yeah. you know, and every layer is a different habitat um, category, like I said, elevation or temperature, mm -hmm. or distance to water, and then you're dropping points in it, and you're seeing what do these points have in common that are used by the bear, and what do the unused points have in common, right. you can actually start to understand relationships and patterns about what bears are selecting for or avoiding. And where do humans come into that equation? Sure. And where do you see the thing that says, oh, there's a hiking trail right. in here, or there's... Um, you know, encroachment bias and development? That's a great question. So humans come into play because, and I have to pat myself on the back a uh -huh. little bit, um, a lot of ecologists and wildlife biologists actually do these type of models. They're very, very common. And very often we're doing them when we're just looking at um, what we call environmental variables. But when I'm doing these models, I am actually adding what we call anthropogenic variables so human variables, so proxies of human activity. So I'm looking at where are recreation sites and what is the distance to the nearest recreation site from where the bear is? Where are um, ski resorts and, and campsites and different types of human development? You know, where are major roads? Where are dirt trails? You know, where are these things in relation to bear locations. Um, so I use actually a lot of different proxies for human activity, and that influences my model. So I'm actually able to see that bears are more likely to be in certain places. My model results show that bears are more likely to use certain places when I include these human variables than when I just use environmental variables. So it tells us essentially a more complete picture of what's going on in the system. And I'm able to show that um, contrary to my original hypothesis, bears aren't always avoiding people. So oh. originally I thought, you know, wherever there's going to be any type of human activity, bears are going to make sure to not be there, especially, you know, females with cubs. And I'm finding that's not always true. So in a lot of ways, if there's a big road, bears are avoiding it. If there is a, um, a ski resort, bears are avoiding it. But I'm finding that some places, like what I'm calling recreation sites, which are essentially campsites, mm -hmm. um, bears are actually more attracted to those areas. because there's easy food there? And we're finding it's because there's easy food there. you also seen this, like, the suburbs of New Jersey mm -hmm. have a bear, I don't know, is problem the right word? I don't know. I know that that's a loaded word. There is a bear factor in yeah. the suburbs of New Jersey as well. So is that the same driver? Basically, people are, what, leaving garbage cans open? It is. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Um, I'll back up and say, you know, just to remind everyone that um, 
bears are bear populations are growing throughout the United States, yeah. and it's a conservation success. Um, and so there used to just not be that many bears in New Jersey, and now the bear populations are doing very well, and there's more to the point that we're experiencing a lot of human bear conflict where bears used to have the entire state of New Jersey and it was all forest and now there are suburbs um, that were built in bear habitat. So they, you know, are coming into conflict with these areas where the bears are essentially confused. On one hand, there's all these resources for them to eat. There's trash. And on the other hand, there's all these people and the bears essentially have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. What's more important to me to access that trash or to avoid these people? Um, And because bears experience hibernation for much of the year, they actually are more attracted to the resources that will allow them to be fatter during hibernation than um, avoid what might be a big danger to them. Meaning they're, you know, from the bears perspective, they're just trying to be like as efficient as possible in their window to like eat and eat and eat. And if that involves just going and opening a trash can. Yes. In fact, <laughs> you just hit on what we call optimal foraging theory. Optimal foraging theory. That's what I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to drop I know you didn't want to brag. Yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> but that's what it's called. Essentially, um, for almost all wildlife species, their inherent goal is to consume as many calories as possible by expending the least energy possible. Um, and people do that too. Sure. So, you yeah. know, like it's way easier for us to go to the grocery store than it is for us to grow and harvest our own food. Um, and so bears are doing that. So if they I can't wait for the like back to the land <laughs> bear movement. Oh my gosh, uh, it's coming like the farm like, to yeah, table. I'm going yeah, to do vertical <laughs> farming and I'm going to, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So bears are, you know, also they can smell really well. Their sense of smell allows them to detect scents from up to a mile away which I can't even imagine. It's incredible. So, you know, when someone like has a barbecue and even they're throwing away like, you know, the aluminum foil that they use for their barbecue, it's smoky, it's meaty and bears smell it from really, really far away. They come out of the forest, they come into the outskirts of towns and they raid people's garbage cans. So it actually is a problem that probably has some easy management um, that can be done. Yeah, so let's go there as we as we start to wrap up sure. here. I'm really curious about you know the recommendations and the, and how this impacts policy and so forth. So well, let's start small bore like you like you were just describing about individual behavior at a campsite or whatever. Right. Yeah. So the the goal of my work is to essentially generate all of these um, models and these models have results and get all this data that I can then feed to wildlife managers. So there are wildlife biologists and then there are people who do wildlife management, you know, mostly at the local level. And so it's really important to be able to tell them this is what the science says. And they can then translate that into appropriate policy for, um, for their local area. So the easy thing is at this point, a lot of what we're saying points to the fact that we need better garbage cans. Um, And there are many, many parts of the United States where people have um, these what we call bear-proof garbage cans. Bears are really good at just opening things. They can open car doors. They can open windows. They can open garbage cans and dumpsters. But there's a way to... just terrified half our listeners, by the way, but they can open car doors. (laughs) They they do it a lot. They do it a lot. but there are bear-proof garbage cans that are, you know, kind of tricky for people to open, but you have to kind of know, you know, know what to do. I was recently in Alaska and I experienced those. And it okay, was so you know what I'm talking about. Jody 
bulletproof garbage can. Yeah, many times. yeah. It's a I mean, tough to open, I will admit that it's not <laughs> as easy as lifting the lid and throwing your stuff in, but yes. bearproof garbage cans are fantastic because they eventually deter bears. So instead of bears getting used to having an access to you know, to garbage that endangers their lives and endangers human lives. They, you know, they try it once, they have no success, and they really keep it moving. So we found that in places where bear-proof garbage cans are mandated by law, we've seen a huge decrease in human-bear conflict. So you, you hinted at it just a little bit now, but you say, you know, you take your work and then you bring it to conservationists or local wildlife management authorities to change their policy. I mean, is there, well, I guess, is there resistance and what does that look like? But also, is there like any wildlife management conventional wisdom that you feel like you're upending through this work? So the great thing about the resource selection probability function mm-hmm. models that I make is that the results can actually be projected onto a map. And that is so crucial for communicating the science. Because if you can see a map that, you know, maybe there's a gradient on this map of, you know, red to green, and green means bears use these areas, and red means bears never use these areas, you can really see on a map the spatial layout of this is critical bear habitat, this is habitat bears aren't really using that much. And that can help us in tremendous ways. Because if you're just an average citizen, you can locate, where's my house on this map? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's in critical bear habitat. What does that mean for how I live and how bears live. Or if you're maybe a business developer, you can look in this map and say, hey, I want to make another ski resort. Like, are there parts of non-critical bear habitat that might be good to develop it as opposed to parts of critical bear habitat? So it can really start a dialogue about what's going on on the landscape in terms of the ecology of these wild animals. But do you worry with that ski developer example that like everything that you haven't identified as critical bear habitat is going to get developed and then there's going to be no margin for error. Yes. Um, So science doesn't always win. (laughs) Um, It's unfortunate, but, you know, often there's just all these economic drivers of development that don't take the natural world into account. Um, So, you know, as a scientist, often you just kind of have to learn that we, we create the science, we generate the data and policymakers do with it what they will. Um, whether that means that we kind of get what we secretly hope for right. or not, um, you know, you never really know. But you have to fight the battles that you can, I guess. Right, yeah. right, and and you know, there are people who are both uh, wildlife biologists and then wildlife policymakers, and they kind of straddle both fields. So they, you know, they create the science and then they also make the recommendations. I really try to stay in the science field where I say this is what the science is telling us. You know. And so now you right. have that information and you can make these decisions. But it does feel like – I don't know if I can articulate this well, but that maybe like a very old school notion of conservation is just kind of like leave the bears alone and they'll leave us alone and you know, just like these worlds should just be completely separate. And it feels like you're just taking as a given that like we've passed that. At this point, right? yeah, these populations are going to interact, and yes. now it's just like, how do we deal with it? And you know, there's there's more bears than there were before, and there's more people than there were right. before, and there's more cities. So you know, old school conservation was very much about preservation. So we'd set up these areas to just preserve them intact as they are, and we found that that model doesn't really work very well in today's day and age because people are everywhere. I mean, we've like kind of developed 
everywhere Everywhere. and everything. So there's going to be tons of overlap in terms of, you know, what is considered good habitat for bears and good habitat for people. And so because of that, actually, you know, a lot of um, the conservation biology theory that we work with is now kind of changing our definition of what is nature and what is wild so that it includes human activity much more because that's that's our reality. All right. So my last question is just back to, you know, broad bear question, which is what do people like get wrong about bears? What's like a common misconception or what's the like question you get asked over and over and over. And I don't know, this is your open mic to just <laughs> unload about about bears. <laughs> sure thing. Oh my gosh, there's so many things. Um, probably the first is about personal safety when it comes yeah. to bears. I mean, there's movies, there's TV shows, but most recently The Revenant, right, showed this incredible scene with Leonardo DiCaprio being attacked and, and people got really into that. Um, and every so often in the news, you know, we'll read about a bear attack. Um, you know, rarely a black bear attack, but sometimes... Um, and a lot of people have the misconception that they can outrun a bear. And so if I could drive home one point, it would be that you cannot outrun almost any wild animal <laughs> of a certain size. So certainly not a bear. Um, don't run from them. If you encounter a bear in the wild, the best thing to do is to back away slowly. Um, remember, these are large carnivores and they do some hunting. So running signals to them that you're a prey animal right um prey think of deer deer run right and then bears catch them and eat them um so back away slowly <laughs> back away slowly um again always face the animal but don't make eye contact that's another thing that prey do prey kind of get locked in you think of the deer in the headlights um deer right. kind of just like make eye contact and never look away that signals to a bear that that's a prey species so look above the bear's head look below the bear's head but don't make eye contact slowly back away at the same time be intimidating so make yourself seem big if you wear a jacket put the jacket over your head you know speak in a low and resonant voice um you'll probably be fine black bears are not known to be super aggressive um polar bears, grizzly bears, brown bears, they are very aggressive animals, but black bears are usually more afraid of you than you are of them. So I we do, I don't want to tell this whole story. It's a lot, very long story, but I recently was in Alaska and actually was lost in the woods for a long oh time, but had this moment. I'm only going <gasps> to mention this small part of it, um, but had this small this moment of like, oh, you know, I may encounter a bear, but I was also like, I knew it was salmon season and that bears were hungry. They weren't really going to mess with us. But I did have this moment of like, I feel like I've read so many times in so many books uh, and I do a lot of stuff outdoors, you know, like the tips that you just advised. And I still in that moment when I kind of needed that information, like I was like, wait, do I run or do I not run? <laughs> like I know it's one of those two. Do I make noise or not make noise? Do I try and act intimidating or try and act me? It, like, it was so frustrating to me like after all these years of feeling like, OK, I'm pretty good in the outdoors, not being able to like – remember the exact thing so now i know though back away slowly don't, don't make forget eye contact. don't panic okay <laughs> don't panic. that's good life advice um okay well we'll leave it on that on that note dr wayne grant thanks for joining us thanks this for was having really me fun. this yeah. is wonderful thanks again that's ray wayne grant of the museum of natural history and one thing we didn't really discuss ray does a lot of work and advocacy around diversity gender diversity and racial diversity in biology and conservation and science as a whole so on our site i've linked to a few articles and a bit of her work on that important effort as well 
What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. There's a link to download the music he wrote for this show on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. You can subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or the new ESPN app by hitting the Listen tab, or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you do subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.